Thanks for downloading show 30 of the C-Suite podcast, the first in a series of specials that I am recording here at the Global ICO PR Summit taking place in Oxford. And I have uh, some seriously strong lineup of guests to chat to, uh, where we'll be discussing a number of topics affecting international PR and communications. Now, if you want to get involved in the conversation, sharing any thoughts you might have on what's being discussed during the show, please do comment on social media using the hashtag hash C-Suite podcast. So kicking off this episode, I'm joined by three guests who have just come off stage from a panel discussion talking about talent in the industry. We have Mohammed Al-Ayed, CEO and President of Trans-Arabian Creative Communications, or TRAX, which is the largest public relations network in the MENA region. Uh, Tanya Hughes, President of CERMO, which is Talk PR's global network of independent communications agencies. And finally, Susan Hardwick, co-founder of Global Women in PR. So thank you very much for all uh, joining us. Um, now, Mohammed, maybe you can just give a quick overview of uh, what you were discussing on the panel just now. I think the 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 key thing is uh, the 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 Eco PR Summit uh, this year has started focusing on on a, an issue of paramount interest and a paramount concern, which is the whole idea of uh, talent, talent uh, creation, talent recruitment, and talent retention. And the panel really focused, I believe, on three main things. I think there's a whole psychological element of how do you retain and build talent, and two, how what how how is the industry moving, vis-a-vis keeping talent and creating whether a department or an agency for the future. And this, I mean, we're here at an international conference. This, this is a global issue. It's not just based in the UK here, is it? This is definitely a global issue. And I think, uh, as we mentioned in the panel, that uh, the talent issue has, be, has been diagnosed years ago. It has just become much more critical and much more, and the issue has become more, more amalgamated now because of the rise of the importance and value and benefit of communications globally. Uh, but this issue has existed for many years. I totally agree on the global point. Um, we've got 15 agencies in our network and had our own conference in Milan in May. And um, the theme of the conference is transformation, how our industry is changing. I mean, it's like that every year, really. But um, but within transformation, talent was the, the biggest subject. Um, how you find people, how you keep them, how you keep them happy. There was a lot of discussion about happiness and job satisfaction and work-life balance all of that kind of thing so and that was right across the board from China through to you know the states India Hong Kong I mean it, it was universal. Tanya uh, sticking with you actually f- for a second this issue of talent recruitment is, is something that comes up quite a lot in, mm. in this series of podcasts mm. that I've been uh, producing and in um, for anyone that wants to check back through my archive show 25 I spoke with Colin Byrne of, of Weber Shanwick he's actually here today um, and and he sees the big issue is, is in fact, the PR agency's approach for talent has, has often been to steal each other's staff and actually PR needs to recruit the kind of people who are currently working at places like social media uh, platform, um, social media platforms, maybe some of the advertising and digital agencies. In, in fact, um, Karen van Bergen touched on this. Uh, she's the CEO of uh, Omnicom Public Relations Group. She touched on that too in her opening keynote um, this morning here at, at the conference. Um, you've got a, a, a global network of uh, of, of agencies um, is, is this something that that you're looking for in terms of like the kind of people that that you're looking to recruit do you agree with what Colin's thoughts are I totally agree and it's already happening when our Spanish agency's um, head of digital came from an advertising agency in our Hong Kong agency they've just recruited a brilliant creative who's you know brilliant at film production and editing uh, and they came from a production house I mean it Absolutely, um, talent is coming from all sorts of different agencies, but of course it w- it works both ways. I mean, our talent is our communications talent is being stolen or you know um, recruited yeah, uh, by ad agencies and by other agencies who um, who all want to work in the digital space. And in the end, it, of course, it is the, the internet that has changed everything for all of us. Yes, yeah. Susan, let's let's bring you into the conversation here. What's what's your thoughts on on that? Well, I agree with what um, Tanya, Colin, and Mohammed have said. It is about spreading uh, the catchment for talent across a wider range of uh, disciplines because creativity, uh, digital platforms, social media all require different skill sets from the traditional routes into PR that used to be the way in through English graduates or communications graduates. And it isn't the case anymore. And in fact, there's an argument that says looking for internships at a much younger age and having the, the ability to get involved and learn the profession and be part of it as a growth plan. Um, it isn't nece- a necessity to have a degree. Um, sometimes that can be a hindrance rather than a help. Um, 
being able to have good apprentice schemes, I think, is perhaps uh, also a good opportunity to develop different ranges of talent. Talking about um, uh, interns and, and apprenticeships, um, I'd be keen to know what your thoughts are on, on another sort of uh, recruitment of talent, and that's about keeping mums um, in the industry. I'd be keen to know what your thoughts are, obviously, given your role at uh, uh, Global Women in PR. Would one answer be maybe for clients to perhaps consider you know, the option of beyond the agency world and, and tap into the growing freelance network, something actually that got brought up in one of the questions in the session, or is that simply avoiding the issue? Uh, it's probably avoiding the issue, but freelancers have been part of, of the PR business for as long as I can remember, you know, plugging gaps, doing project work, um, being there to add value when necessary, when you don't need to employ somebody for 52 weeks a year, that you have this project and you bring in specialists to uh, balance out the team to deliver good work. Um, having mums come back into the business, yes, that's that's a very positive thing. Um, we were discussing off air, if you like, the situation of staff going away, having children and coming back, but there being a very big gap between leaving and coming back. And that's a difficult situation in which to deal because our world changes very rapidly. And there needs to be work on both sides. One, we have very generous maternity leave. And equally, uh, returning mums expect to hand back to the same privileges and benefits as they had prior to stepping away. And there needs to be some sort of gap in the middle. It could be that there's retraining, that they need to go through a process of training to get up to speed before coming back taking on that role or that there needs to be some form of link during the time off that it isn't just a, a blank page you can do that um, being a working mother uh, you know I went back to work very quickly okay I was running my own business but but it is possible to do both mm. and it is possible to keep communication open mm. and there was, there's always a lot of talk about employers needing to be more flexible and you know job sharing or different working hours etc and in my experience actually employers are are fairly flexible I think all of our agencies are very understanding of um, creating work-life balance and making sure people are happy at work um, but recent experiences showed um, that returning mums particularly after a first baby and it does make a difference and I'm speaking as a mother of three um, it is a bit of a shock and I think because we're a service industry you, you do expect people to come back and service clients and that means being available a lot of the time so even if you're working part-time sometimes you have to be available sometimes you have to do longer working hours and it isn't perfect but that's the way our industry is because you know there are lots of other benefits in, in of working in the communications industry and I think you know motherhood and mums are so sort of lionized now for doing this sort of perfect job looking after their kids well actually you can do both I know you can and I think we we but on both sides there needs to be more flexibility uh, I want to um go on to the topic of how you're actually defining talent. Um, the skill sets uh, required in PR are constantly changing to the point where um, when I interviewed Richard Miller of h Strategies, again, going back to previous shows, uh, that's show 24, uh, he said that the makeup of his agency had fundamentally changed over the last two or three years and that he couldn't remember the last time he interviewed someone with a typical PR background. And in fact, h now hired data scientists and more craft uh, led creatives. What's your thoughts on that, Mohammed? Maybe you, you want to start there. I mean, I think if we have to look, we look at the whole evolution of the word talent. First of all, people never used to say talent. They used to say um, employees, then they said resources, and then they and then talent. And I think the reason for that is that there has been an evolutionary process in the whole uh, job uh, uh, market. So from seekers, providers, etc. But I think. I do agree with you on the point that uh, uh, in terms of PR people, they don't necessarily have to be uh, you know, uh, PR people by, by education. But if you go back to the word talent, and I think defining the talent, is it, it's different from uh, organization to another. I personally think the talent is the organization's recognition of the skill and the personality of an individual that will suit and best serve their purposes. So it might be, it might be an agency that has, or a department that has uh, people on part-time or that the mix in their in the agency or department is something with freelancers and uh, with full-timers. And other agencies, no, it can be full-timers, they have to be full-timers. But um, uh, the best, uh, in, in, in tracks, our best people are actually people that have come out of, not from public relations. We actually have engineers, we have, um, we had once a, a doctor, uh, a clinical psychologist. So it, it is the ability to master 
um, the skill, the communication skill, and supported by a discipline that best suits the purpose of the agency and the client base and the mix, etc. We're at an international conference. Um, one of ICO's partners at the event, Conversus, who I should caveat uh, with a note that I've consulted uh, for them over the last couple of years, but they did a report last year on the lack of global talent in UK and US, uh, which, given their localization of, um, agency, obviously, focused on the fact that, for example, here in the UK, our kids don't learn a second language and therefore their employment opportunities are restricted. And uh, UK uh, PLC, according to the uh, APPG for Modern Languages, um, loses out on around uh, £50 billion um, pounds a year um, in lost contracts be- because of that lack of language skill. Um, is, th- is that something, you know, as I said, we're international conference, we're talking about global campaigns uh, represented here in, in, in some instances. Is that something that gets considered when you're looking at, at talent recruitment? Having operated on an international scale uh, in a sector that was uh, involved in events around the world in in the yachting sphere, it was very important to have um, several languages represented because we were dealing with journalists from all over the world, most of whom did speak English, but it was important to provide material, to communicate, to negotiate in the different languages. So we employed um, talented, uh, if you like, language students. It wasn't about necessarily going with communications specialists who could speak another language. I actually employed um, uh, graduates who had studied languages and who were fluent and um, and then taught them how to write and put them, you know, put the other skills in place and that worked extremely well. So it's, a, it's the same thing about using a greater pool for talent. You, Mohammed was saying about having a psychologist and, and about having a doctor because mm-hmm. presumably that intellectual approach to the areas of uh, that, that were important to a client, the same thing with having uh, linguists as part of the team because they could deliver what the client needed in delivering results and you can teach the other skills if they are have an aptitude for communications. I think there are two main challenges here for for us being a business based in London. One is um, being at the centre of a a big network. We run the network in English. I mean, to our shame, you know, our Chinese partner, you know, our our guys from Singapore, from Brazil, I mean, they speak brilliant English, which makes you terribly lazy. But in a sense, and this brings me on to to the other point, you know, English is the global communications language, and, and of course that is facilitated by the internet. Okay, China separately, but you know, most internet traffic is in English. So we're sort of lulled into a false sense of security there. But the caveat to that is in our business in London, um, almost half our work now is global strategy work. So working with big global brands who want central themes and material and content that can then travel around the world. And to make that better and to make make sure that is adaptable to different territories. I mean, obviously, we get information from our network, which is fantastic, but we employ, you know, a, a Swedish account director. We've got um, a German, um, a Polish um, account director on, on our global team. I mean, our global team is truly multinational, which, by the way, made the Brexit day mm. hideous. I can imagine. For us. Mm. I mean, you know, we're not mainly, but there were a lot of tears. I mean, a lot of you know, is my job safe? Do I have to leave? I mean, it was awful because we are quite, you know, international. How did you deal with that? Um, you know, by reassuring people that, of course, they're fine. Yeah. And of course, we're going to stay global and have an international perspective. I mean, London's open. Of, co- of course it is. I mean, it was uh, obviously it was an e- immediate sort of shock reaction. Uh, but that was quite telling. Um, sticking with you for a second, I took... I t- took a look at your uh, Talk PR Careers uh, page before this interview, um, <laughs> and it states, ours is a talent business, so you've got the word talent in there, yeah. um, our investment in developing and nurturing our people uh, rewards talent and puts it at the uh, heart of the agency. And then um, scrolling down, it goes on to talk about uh, your learning and inspiration program, which consists of 52 uh, masterclass workshops. So it's quite an impressive commitment, but without obviously listing all those topics, can, can you just give us an overview of how that program works? And do you believe there is enough programs like yours across the industry to attract the kind of talent that's required that we're talking about? Well, first of all, our, our 52 um, unit um, training program had a very long gestation period. I know we were talking about working Muslim. It took, you know, well over a year to uh, to craft. And um, 
listen, the motivation for doing that actually was retention as much as attracting new people. Mm. So, um, you know, we, we know we've got some great people. We want to give them all the tools that they need to do a great job, but also develop. So the training program is geared around personal development. So everyone in the agency has a personal development plan, and I think that's a good thing. Um, and is that, is that totally across all levels? All levels. Yeah. From, um, you know, graduate starts well actually they're not always graduates now we're doing an apprenticeship scheme funny enough so um but you know right from the juniors through to board level so at board level we do mm. um training and development as well um but we we looked at you know everything we we thought we needed to throw in i mean literally the kitchen scene we had lots of brainstorms and used an hr consultant but we we sort of have two main areas of development one is personal development so helping people become great at presenting, running meetings, you know, d- understanding their personal style, conflict resolution, all that, all those sorts of things. I mean, quite a lot of detail, as well as the nitty-gritty of you know business and financial management and under- understanding all of that. And also um, getting some inspiration. We're all in a creative business. So, you know, um, getting external speakers to come in, doing cultural trips. Um, we run talk TED Talks um, where we edit TED Talks and talk about why we love them. So that personal side is very important. And then on the client side, it's about making the job rewarding for the clients and for us and for the people that we work with. So, you know, how, how do you establish the parameters of your client relationship? You know, how do you um, measure and evaluate? How do you pitch great stories to the media and influencers? How do you write for different in different contexts? Because obviously with the with social media, the writing is much more punchy and pithy. You know, you can't waffle. So, And that's a particular skill. So all of that, I mean, I am going on and on now, <laughs> but there are 52 units, but it's very important. Although I would say at the um, sort of mid and junior level, it's done almost nothing for attention because our people are getting nicked. So we've now got a reputation within our sphere, which is um, fashion and luxury and lifestyle, where there isn't necessarily that much rigor in training in right. some of the smaller agencies. Um, we have a reputation for training people <laughs> brilliantly, and they get poached. So um, it hasn't fulfilled one of our original objectives. What it has done, though, is allow us to identify stars and really bring certain people on. So it's yeah. incredibly important, and we are totally committed to it. Mohammed's nodding away there. You you wanted to add? <laughs> I mean, I completely agree with uh, uh, with what you just said, but uh, also I think there's a certain um, there's a certain satisfaction within because employees will always be poached, just like companies will open. You always have a competitor, but I think the 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 satisfaction bit that I talk about is that that you know that you've absolutely done your utmost best to maintain to keep that person. But you cannot keep them for obvious reasons, and I think that internal uh, trigger or indicator, if it's okay, then uh, you know, you know, c'est la vie. This things happen like this. But I think it's people or organizations a little bit feel the heat is that when you actually your internal processes are not uh, 100% uh, working, it means that you are losing talent. And I think I think um, because of the shortage of c- uh, communicators uh, around the world that there's always this revolving door policy. There's always somebody coming in and leaving. Um, I, I just want to say something that I think for me, when I look at it, the first prerequisite when we hire somebody is that we, we like this approach that you say you, you hire for attitude and you train for skills. And this is really, it works far. Now, depending on the situation, but a person with a, with a great attitude and an ability to learn is far better than somebody who's a, who's a nightmare to work with. And I want to just give an example. I used to have a guy that... He was a brilliant writer and translator, but he fought with everybody. Even maybe the doors in the office, he fought with them. But we didn't want to lose him. So he turned into a freelancer, and he's doing a brilliant job. So it's, again, it's, I go back to the whole word, word of the recognition of an organization of the person's skills and personality, and you have to make it work for you. So we're talking about um, keeping people there. One final question to all of you and uh, one sentence on attracting the best talent to the industry. Susan, let's start with you. Creating a great environment in which to work, a place where people will be banging at your door and want to be part of your team. Sounds good. Uh, Tanya? (laughs) Do great work and promote the hell out of it. Okay, that's very simple. (laughs) And uh, Mohammed, finally. Transparency, integrity and ingenuity. That's great. Mohamed Al-Ayed, Tanya Hughes and Susan Hardwick, thanks for joining the show. We are back after this quick break. It's harder than ever to keep track of everything being said in news and social media. It's even more difficult to gain actionable insights that will improve your reputation and results. 
Karma provides global media intelligence services to help you communicate more effectively. From automated media monitoring to expertly crafted PR measurement reports, Karma delivers what matters. For more information or to schedule a free consultation, please visit karma.com. That's C-A-R-M-A dot com. Welcome back to the C-Suite podcast here at ICO's Global PR Summit with me, Russell Goldsmith, and joining me now is Pascal Bickler, Senior Vice President and Chief Strategy Officer um, for Global at MSL Group. Now, Pascal is over from Paris for the conference and presented a session a little earlier today on the subject brand culture in the conversation age. Uh, Pascal, your talk was very much about relationships. It was, definitely. I'm really happy you noticed it. And, uh, you know, it's um, if we think about it two minutes, just because the name of the business in which we are is public relations. And one of my... Um, attempt to uh, bring the conversation on, on this uh, was to say that what we call PR is still public relation, which is uh, an old socio-demographic concept and a pre-disintermediation concept. It was when the PR people would speak to stakeholders for them to speak to final clients in order to have some message carried on. Mm. Now it's gone. Of course, um, gatekeepers are gone, and so um, I like to speak of PR as being people relationship. Yeah. Uh, we are good at that, creating relationships which are going to be content-rich, uh, full of emotional connections, uh, with a strong meaning, um, whether on the reputation side or on the commercial side of the business. So yes, definitely it was all about relationship. <laughs> You talked about how brands are having to reinvent what they are doing to reach their audiences to overcome the disenchantment with yeah. uh, traditional advertising, yeah. uh, the choice of options on where to consume content and the barriers in place such as ad blocking tools. Could, could you give some recent examples that MSL Group have, have worked on in particular? Um, that's a very good point. Um, firstly, it started from something which we didn't invent, which is just the reality shown yeah. by facts and figures. Um, those young people, uh, whether the Zen, the Z generation, as we call them, born, uh, you know, between the nineties um, uh, and twenty ten, or the those who are a bit older, um, uh, born between the eighties and two thousand, they have a relationship to uh, brands and um, promotion advertising, which is totally free of any form of prerequisite. Uh, they don't care that we, their parents, or older people have been used to suck TV ads uh, in prime time between the end of the uh, news and the beginning of the film. Yeah. They just don't care and they are not watching that. And for them, the uh, only relationship they accept with a brand has to be based on mutual respect, parity, the fact that um, nothing is top-down, it has to be unintrusive. It has to be based on choice, desire, attraction, seduction. If it's like this, it works. If it's not like this, it doesn't work. So um, to speak about uh, one example of what we've been doing, which is successful, um, like a girl, always, PNG, and now the emojis, we are typically playing that game. Um, it's not advertisement. It is uh, viral videos um, which are creating the condition of a dialogue, a consistent dialogue between the target we want to address and um, a cultural factor issue, which is that the world in which we live is mostly designed by men for men. Yeah. And that's for a young teenager's a young teenager, a young girl who wants to become a free woman um, with a real capacity to master her destiny, she has to face a society which is basically designed by men for men. And the genius of always, and the genius of the company behind Procter & Gamble has been to say, we deliver much more than protection uh, at the moment of every month. We deliver another vision of young girls uh, based on um, the understanding we have that they have a strong desire to get freed of the chains 
in which the society and the males put them. Yeah. So that's exactly what I would call the new age of relationship between brands and people. It's not about telling you my product is better than the other one. It's not about telling you that uh, you know uh, uh, you're going to listen to what I'm going to say to you and you will do what I said. No, it's about saying, hey, there is an issue. Why don't we discuss it and find a solution? That like a girl campaign actually has come up a couple of times in this in this series of podcasts, and it's it's one I particularly like because um, I'm talking about the video uh, that that won at Cannes a couple of years ago mm-hmm. because it's so simple in terms of its video production. Yeah. But it's very much about the story, isn't exactly. it? Exactly. Yeah. You said it perfectly well. Yeah. It's nothing complicated. It is, um, you know, just starting with what is it to be like a girl, exactly, and then yeah. showing the wrong sides, the wrong understanding, yeah. the wrong way to see it, and then uh, the empowerment of these young girls who, you know, and this is the magic of their generation. Yeah. Their mothers, their grandmothers wouldn't have been comfortable in that or their mothers would have been like ideologically against and being on a more sort of feminist mindset which would have been more about demonstrating Uh, there is no demonstration there is just hey leave me in peace just take me the way i am and i'm much more and better than you think (laughs) um we're gonna try and talk through the uh the sirens going in the background here, but um, another area that you touched on um, in your talk about the uh, was about the ubiquity of technology and also gamification. Um, there's actually a great post on your, on the MSL uh, Group um, UK mm. blog. I, I, yeah. I looked up about uh, yeah. gamification, um, so it's worth anyone just googling that to try and find it. Um, but and, and I know it's hard to summarise, but how do you see brands using gamification in their communication with their audiences? Uh, the way I see it is um, uh, two ways, in fact. The, the, the first one is that gaming is, is really something big, a huge trend um, for uh, millennials in the white sands, but even for older people. Uh, why? Because the smartphone is always in our pocket. And when we have a free time or we're stuck into a traffic jam or we are at the airport, we use it for communicating, for getting informed, for transactions. But at some point, we're also happy to use it for gaming. And so there is a perfect sort of compatibility and convergence between the device and the will to be gaming. The other aspect, as we uh, saw it uh, with the, the, the Hero C Quest, uh, the Deutsche Telekom Institute on the Brain um, partnership, is that um, thanks to the power of data and thanks to the good power of data, <laughs> you can use millions of um, data created by millions of people on the way they play to um, fight against Alzheimer. And this, I love it, because it's um, giving gaming another dimension, which is what I call brand utility, right? A brand is not just a dream. It has to be something useful in my life. And so brand utility is wonderfully served by gaming. It's all but difficult. It's just cool, easy. You're happy to play, and while doing so, you, you're doing good. What else? Um, I wanted to refer back to the title of your talk and the fact that you use the word conversation. Um, now, that naturally means at least a two-way dialogue, obviously sometimes more, yep. but exchanging new news and ideas. Wha- what do you think companies should be doing better to listen to their audiences, in, and, and I'm talking about internal as well as external, um, to improve that? That conversation. Well, that's another very good point. They, they should make it uh, really the, the center of their um, plans for the year to come. Um, listening is the basis of everything. Um, you remember I've been talking about um, what I've called um, collaborative convergence, uh, the fact that o- o today um, the innovation which works, the ideation which is fruitful, um, is based on co-creation, generation of insights, collaboration between the audience of the brand and the brand. And it has to be inside out. That is the first category of audience a company should consider is their own staff. If it is the staff first, and then the audience they want to be addressing, and they together build something which is going to be including people's needs, Mm. is going to work. I I call it, you know, 
fr from people's insights to people inside strategies offer communication because you get the insights of the real people yeah everything you're going to create is going to be people inside and so it's magic it's working because uh, brands you're bringing me something I've been dreaming of and so this is totally virtuous uh, a, a virtuous circle it is not expensive collaborative platform don't cost a lot it is paying respect to the people the the staff and the clients I don't see what we could do that could be better than this uh, to get the best possible result. Brilliant. Um, now, you're a juror at uh, Cannes Lions uh, this year for, I believe, the third time in four years, I yes. think it was. Four, um, four, four time, if you take into consideration, I was also heading uh, the Cannes Lions um, uh, links oh, okay. uh, in Dubai in March. Oh, so right. <laughs> okay, fair enough. <laughs> now, I had the privilege of recording a few podcasts from uh, Ico's Cabana in Cannes. Um, and for anyone that wants to check back, their shows 24, 25, and 26 in the series. Um, I read on the release on your website announcing you as a juror that you said you are passionate about evaluating what it takes to cut through and mm. connect converting consumers into fans and content into culture. So my question um, is, did you see any campaigns this year that ticked all those boxes? Oh, definitely. And again, I was so happy to be um, in this uh, newly created uh, entertainment jury um, because uh, that's exactly where it happened. You know, when I was in the PR jury a few years before, um, or a few months before, um, it, it was great. You have la crème de la crème, you just, uh, you know, watching and evaluating what the best creation in the world. Uh, what's new, what was new uh, this year is that entertainment is meeting most of what we've been talking about, that is creating a relationship based on rich content, great relationship, clever contact strategies, a true understanding of communities and the language. Um, all of that is check, 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 check. You've got all of it. Um, and yes, this is what I was meaning when I said that. Um, it's what I call brand culture. It's moving from promotion and business as usual and top-down intrusive advertising to something which is based on the cleverness of relationship. For me, it's very close. Um, you're going to say it's very French, but it's very <laughs> close to what's happening between um, two people when they sort of fall in love. There is something which goes beyond uh, attraction uh, in the sense of physical attraction. There is the, that very specific feeling you have that the person you are with and talking, talking to is special to you because in many ways she has something which is in you, but something which is not and could be in you. So there is like filling a gap, you know, filling a blank and creating something which is going to make um, the audience, so the people and the brands, sort of partners. Yeah, yeah. You know? And if you do that, believe me, um, and think to what I've been talking about, like the Ford example or the Nike woman, Lillian Margot, and many other, something happened here which is unique which is changing uh, what marketing used to be. That is quite a basic uh, so-called science, uh, which is now replaced by the best of the uh, convergence between mm -hmm. psychology, semiotics, anthropology, um, intimate knowledge of human behaviors. So that's that's really interesting. Yeah, so much to uh, take into consideration as Ooh. when you're when you're talking through it, though. Um, the one of the sessions that, that followed yours was uh, Petra uh, Sammer. Yeah, excellent um, yeah, storytelling. Uh, yeah, so I'm catching up with with Petra um, straight after after I speak to you. Um, she talks about yeah exactly what you just said there, turning companies in, into storytellers. Uh, I'm keen to hear your take on storytelling and whether the PR industry has the talent. Given we were talking about talent this mm. morning as well, do, you know, do, does the PR industry have that talent in the industry to achieve what is required? Yeah, I, I think so for two reasons. The first one is uh, our DNA. Um, public relation was born in to storytelling, if you think about it. Uh, early uh, at the beginning of the 20th century, uh, the point was to build a story about something, uh, aiming at reaching a goal, of course. 
And as I was telling Petra, um, it was uh, everywhere in her presentation, uh, the uh, so Vladimir Prop was this Russian formalist uh, who uh, wrote the morphology of tales. And he showed that if you take 100% of the tales for children from Grimm to Perrault to uh, whoever you want around the world, each and every tale is built on the same principle. I have a problem. I need a solution. I have a hero. I have a solution, and I generalize the benefit of what's happened. And and this is typically the sort of uh, environment and know-how in which we are good. Let's just take a, um, a bit of facts and figures. If you look at the market today, um, this is going to be global. It's going to be average. It's going to be much more or a little less. But basically, in the Western world today, uh, from the US to Europe, uh, probably 50% of the content created for brands is created by PR companies. No doubt. Yeah. You have the digital players. They are excellent uh, in turning content into something which is going to be working online. Um, advertisers do very little content. It's not their business. Um, who is doing most of the content today based on data analysis, um, uh, data in the wide sense, and um, you know facts and figures, and intimate knowledge of business models, insights, and foresights. Never forget that, that our business is about insights and foresights. We need uh, to bring ideas which are grounded into insights, that is understanding of the people, and foresights, which is the projective part. If, then. But right. so based based on what you just said there, though, and given you were at the you were on the jury at at, uh, at Cam, why do you think the PR agencies are falling short in the PR category? Of winning the awards. That's that's for me. It's uh, somewhere between psychology, psychoanalysis, uh, and uh, the famous Stockholm syndrome. Um, uh, uh, this business has been underestimated, uh, underrated, uh, poorly looked at mm. uh, for decades. Uh, it was uh, at the best, um, you know, uh, press release and. Uh, trying to bring together a few things to make a story believable. Uh, at the worst, it was the, as I was saying, the champagne and petit four sort of, uh, let's celebrate something. Um, and it has long been uh, just a department for an ad agency. And in, in that department, usually you had uh, the three idiots that nobody else wanted. Um, now the reality, if you look at the budgets of, let's say, probably the 20 major uh, companies and brands in the world, um, um, within five years, uh, you turn to maybe two-thirds media above the line, yeah. one-third mostly PR, to the reverse. It's not a surprise. Why? Firstly, because again, uh, half of the population of the world, the millennials, half of the population of the world doesn't look TV, and certainly not in prime time. They, they, they look online, mm. whatever they want, um, and so they reject the uh, intrusive pop-up and uh, ad uh, uh, harassment which is coming online. They put ad blockers everywhere. Uh, I was in a, the best university in Paris the other day, in Sciences Po, um, and 90% uh, of the amphitheatre, of this is the elite of tomorrow, 90% have had ad blockers. So when you arrive at this, you understand that there is a revolution which has to come. Um, and in which PR, which is very flexible, agile, um, media agnostic, uh, idea driven and insights driven, has a huge role to play. But for this, you need PR people to stop you know, being sure that they are just nothing. Where, where do you think it's going to go, though, with the media owners that are blocking the users who have the ad blockers? <laughs> <laughs> it's at, the, at the end, the only one who have the power are the people. Yeah. So if they start... Which is the case in any exactly. situation. So if they yeah. start the dirty game to try to <laughs> punish... Uh, it's, it's no, no, it's interesting. I discussed this with a client I have in Canada who is in the publishing industry and 
and created publishing platforms. Uh, for the moment, they can offer people a free access to great information online on tablet mm. for free. For the moment, they have a business model in which they still are uh, somewhere between uh, break-even and profitable only by ad, programmatic ad, ad. Uh, the limit of it is what we say. And now the next boundary for them is micropayments, PayPal application, getting free content, and if I want better content, deeper content, I'm going to pay, but I'm not going to pay a subscription, I'm going to pay five euros. Yeah. And this is going, plus add to that the mix of GPS, geomarketing, and retail. If you are somewhere uh, in a place in Quebec, uh, in a small village, and you can reconnect the retail uh, company, permission marketing, the guy, uh, the content which is local, and an invitation to have a, a, a minus 20%, and you take a 20% commission on that, you can make business profitable, but not the old way. <laughs> um, finish off, I, I just was keen for you to, uh, to sum up what the main drivers are for brands in, in what you now call the, the conversation age. So that's, uh, that's the best question, certainly. I would <laughs> say uh, first and more than ever, a complete creativity uh, in the sense of creativity of the mind. Uh, no boundaries. Um, um, you know, it has been too long that what we do was uh, the, the daughter of marketing, which is a cold science. So we need to open the windows and the doors and we need to privilege creativity in everything we do thinking first. A conversation based on creativity is a seducing one, an attractive one. Um, first point. Second point, there is no conversation if there is no equity and equality and parity, right, between the two sides. Mm. It has to be two ways, in love, like in PR. So if it is a dominating conversation, it goes nowhere. There is an art of respecting the other, and we really have to be good at that. Uh, then conversation, the good point is that it, it, it doesn't start, it never stops. It's a continuum. Uh, we call that the always-on conversation. It means that the priority for us, and this we are not there, is to be on people's timeline. You should not engage on anything, anytime, anyway. You should know that your people's timeline requires that if you start a conversation on something, it has to be at this moment, that way, through this contact. Mm. So we need a lot of science. I call it the art and science of conversation. It's a mix of science and the art in the sense of the rhetorics and, and the art of conversation uh, for the Greek and the Roman. <laughs> so if we do that, Honestly, we can have a bright future. Fantastic. This has been a fascinating conversation. I, I said that was the last question. I actu actually do have one more mm -hmm. before I let you go. Um, it comes from David Gallagher uh, of Omnicom PR Group, um, who, as you know, is, is here at the conference. Um, but he tweeted me a question when he saw I, I said I was going to be talking to you. It's probably the most important question of the interview. He wants to know, what's your favorite favorite rum bar in Paris? Aha, la romerie, <laughs> bien sûr, in Saint-Germain-des-Prés, where... I had the pleasure to go with him. It's a very, very well-known place close to the Café de Flore and Les Deux Magots where Sartre, Beauvoir, uh, but also Miles Davis, uh, the existentialists, the philosophers, the jazzmen in the 50s uh, used to uh, meet. And the Romerie is an institution. Um, it's an old place and you have nothing but rum, the most fantastic <laughs> rum possible. And uh, I'm happy to see David this weekend in Paris. I promised uh, him I will make for him a tour of the city. Très bien. Thank you very much. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, that's really great. I really appreciate you giving up some time to chat to me, Pascal. If you want to hear more of Pascal's views, you can follow him on Twitter um, using at, and it's, I'll spell it for you, it's at P-B-E-U-C-L-E-R. Um, we're back after this. Consumers are 10 times more likely to buy goods or services if addressed in their own language. Conversus enables international businesses to communicate their message across different languages and cultures. For translation and localization of your PR comms and website content, multilingual desktop publishing, and audio dubbing and subtitling of videos, visit conversus.com.
You're listening to the C-Suite podcast and a reminder that if you hear anything you want to comment on across social media, uh, please do get involved using the hashtag hash C-Suite podcast. And of course, if you want to get in touch with me about the show, perhaps even support it with some sponsorship or advertising, then drop me a line via Twitter using at Russ Goldsmith. Um, in the meantime, I'm thrilled to now be joined by Petra Sammer. Uh, she is partner and chief creative officer at Ketchum Pleon in Germany. Um, Petra spoke earlier today about turning companies into storytellers and she's kindly agreed to stay back at the end of the uh, first day of the conference to do this interview. Um, Petra, would you agree that storytelling is becoming one of those overused buzzwords in the PR industry? Yeah, unfortunately, yes. So hello, Russell, and, and, and thanks for having me on your show. It's a and pleasure. That, that's, a good, that's a good starting point. Definitely, yes. As I said already in conference, it is overused so many, I use the term in so different um, meanings, and I kind of this is also the challenge we have. So... Um, either if we meet um, colleagues or if we meet clients, everyone, I think, has a different definition in mind. So the, the first advice I can give <coughs> is um, be clear what you're talking about when it comes to, to definitions. So um, I always distinguish between minimum these four kind of um, definitions. Either it's a rhetoric technique, so sprinkle some anecdotes into your speech, or it's like journalists use a story, um, so the, the term story. So every journalist is reaching out for stories. So this is also why we pay our people, I think, tend to think we're good storytellers because we know the term story from journalism. Yeah. But it's a different meaning than in a rhetoric technique. The third kind of definition or context where we use storytelling is around corporate identity or brand identities or the story or the history, that's maybe the better word, where a brand or a company comes from. And the last one, I think why we are very much excited about everything right now is the original meaning of a story, to, um, how authors yeah. and, and scriptwriters use it. I, I was... Um Chatting earlier in, in the show to three of your fellow speakers, uh, Mohammed El Ayad, um, Tanya Hughes and Susan Hardwick, we were talking about talent. It's been a, a big theme of, of the conference um, on, on day one. Um, do, do you think PR has good storytellers in, in the sense of how you're defining it there? So I think absolutely when it comes to in the meaning of rhetoric technique. Uh, we teach all our clients in media trainings when we pr prepare them for trainings to sprinkle in some anecdotes for being p more personal, more emotional, so we, we teach them, I think, in the right direction. So this is where I know PR people know exactly what a good story is uh, in, in this kind of sense. Yeah. We are obviously very good when it comes to journalism and, and, and how to frame a story. Um, many of us are very good in helping brands or, or companies to um, also kind of describe where they come from and where they're going to. So either it's uh, um, the story of a founder, like Steve Jobs and Apple, or um, um, Zuckerberg and Facebook, mm. while the Johnson brother Johnson and Johnson, and um, and even but even more challenging is if you don't have this kind of fascinating visionaire. So those companies and brands who are not cannot tap back to their founder, they definitely need help. And I think in the PR we are very good at that too. To to create and help uh, clients to find a, sto a story around around there where they come from and what they go through, where we had to learn a little bit more is with in this original sense. I think there we we uh, we need to um, add some skills like um, being more emotionally, show some empathy. Hmm. Um, when it this this is this all kind of belongs to the story in a certain when it comes to real narrative. Um, uh, many people, uh, many colleagues in pay are coming either from journalism, some are studied economics or marketing. So many of us are facts driven, information driven, and also our clients are. So um, to be able to sprinkle in emotions, to show empathy, to make people laugh, to make people cry, I think that's a skill uh, which is still rarely seen yeah. in the industry. I, I loved how in your session you, you split it up into four different types of, of story. W um, maybe you can expand on that in a second. But w w what I wanted to ask you is w when I was part of the CIPR social media panel, we wrote a skills guide to, to social storytelling. Mm -hmm. um, 
and, and, and I think that's still online, actually, if listeners want to search for it. But um, within that, uh, Dan Tite, who was co-chair at the time of, of the panel, quoted, um, and I believe this is right, Christopher uh, Booker, who outlined the seven basic plots to a story, which were overcoming the monster, the quest, uh, journey and return, rebirth, rags to riches, comedy and tragedy. And I, I, I was keen to find out, is that is that a good place to start to think about your brand story, or does that just end up confusing the issue <laughs> so it's it's a fantastic um methodology to select different kind of types of stories yeah so um that that's as brilliant what what um, booker has done um my experience when talking to clients it can be a bit confusing in the um, um doing an interpretation of a story backwards there you can uh, th- uh, these categories may be helpful for example Apple at the very beginning attacking IBM. This was this was overcoming the monster. Course, IBM yeah. ter- changing completely its business model, fr- um, getting rid of all hardware. So they're now sell- no more selling any desktops, any laptops. They get rid of all this business and are now t- they turned into a consulting business or a consulting company. Um, that's that, that, that's um, a rebirth story. So I think when you see the story and you have the book as categories, it's easy to identify, ah, this is this, this and this. Yeah. But when so it's easier to do it after the event almost. I think absolutely. Yeah. But yeah. when you really start for and go to a client, so do you want to do rags to riches or return on this? I think it's a little bit too theoretical for a sure. client to accept it. So for the benefit of, the, of our listeners, obviously, that weren't in the session, you you went through four different sort of segments and t- or types of story. It was interesting. I don't know if you want to just quickly sort of run through well, what well you were I talking ca- through. I can. Well, actually, the, the, the it starts um, with my advice, never uh, tell a story without a reason. So you yeah. need to have a reason for your story. So each, every fairy tale gives you something more, an advice, a morale or something. So... That's one of the essence of good stories. So where do these um, reasons come from? And either you go to Simon Sinek's golden golden circle, so everyone knows this fantastic TED talk he has done about yeah. the what, how, and why. So you can either circle your um, your your reason. Um, but there's also another model um, built on the four fundamental desires. And as I made um, four corners, so I said kinda either you can circle your reason or you can walk in one of these four corners. And these yeah. four corners sit on each or each of our four fundamental um, desires. You can sit in one of these corners. One is wanting to, people want to be with others together. So community and being loved, actually, it's one of the main desires we all share. Security and stability is another one. Everyone wants to be safe, feel safe. Self-fulfillment is a third one. And the fourth is freedom and independence. So every one of us has these four desires. And you can um, also corner or set kind of brands or set certain brands in these corners. So FedEx, an American logistic company, definitely sits in the security or stability um, corner. Mm. Uh, every story they tell is about the FedEx man will come. <laughs> you can be sure he will come and we will deliver this package. Um, Coca-Cola, and also we saw in this show, um, in, this in our conference, um, um, a wonderful um, story by told by Guinness about a, a rugby player who is unwilling that he's gay. And he thought when he will publish this, he's going to be very alone. Everyone will... Let him, g- let him, uh, will not, will not believe him that he's a really strong and a tough guy. But actually, the the, the end of the story was n- no, you're not alone. We we still love you. Yeah. Let's say we yeah. are still part of our team, and you still f- fans will stand behind you. So Guinness and also specifically also Coca Cola is always about community, being together with people. Sure. Nike, the founder of Nike says. If you have a body, you are an athlete, so you can do it. So this is the corner of self-fulfillment. He, he may have a challenge with me, but <laughs> uh. <laughs> no, he will even say here. All stories they tell. Okay, they use a lot of yeah. celebrities, th- th- fantastic um, players, or uh, sportsmen and sportswomen. Yeah. But even they have a lot of stories where you think, oh, this is an ordinary guy, and even he or she makes it. 
And so the fourth corner, Freedom Independent, I think has no other brand than Holly Davidson, who sits that strong in this corner. And all stories they tell are about being free and being independent. So we're born to, to Ray Waldo, the, 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 um, the movie... Easy Rider. Easy Rider. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Well, this is this is an essence of the yeah. whole of the whole brand. I, I it was kind of coincident. I think that they teamed up with them, but anyway. So so wherever they they go, however they they, talk, they, they feed the feeling of freedom yeah. and independence. So if you talk to your client about storytelling, ask them which of these corners may be yours, and yeah. you have a good starting point for story. I, I thought it was an interesting, um, just to prove I was listening into in, in your talk about what you said about with Harley Davidson in particular, that you don't, you're not buying the bike. The yeah, bike comes free. That's <laughs> a, absolutely, it's a quote I, I, I don't know where, uh, stolen from a marketing yeah. um, director. Yes, he says, so we sell you the feeling the bike comes yeah. the product itself comes for free that's fantastic but, but kind of to build on this and um, when i often talk to clients they want to be in all four corners mm. so think about coca-cola can be in all corners yes it's about community and being having fun together but also coca-cola is safe and secure wherever you are in the world if there is this if there is bad water or you cannot drink anything you buy a coke and you're sure <laughs> that's a safe drink of course, Coca-Cola can claim, hey, we help you to uh, fulfill your dreams. Why not? Mm. And at least they also could sit like a Harley Davidson in the corner of freedom and dependency. It's an American icon standing for freedom yeah. like America. But they choose a specific desire they want to sit on. They are not um, compromising by t uh, telling stories on this, on this, on this, on this. I think this is their strength that they always pick a specific one and they stay with this um, desire. Um, one, one of the issues we have as, as communicators is, is, of course, how our audiences are now consuming the messages, and particularly within social media and on their mobiles. Um, what was keen to, to get your thoughts on, particularly given attention spans have dropped to, I believe, around eight seconds now? Um, can you tell a story in like a six-second Vine or a short Instagram video? Um, and also, what about the ephemeral nature of, of things like Snapchat, where your story will disappear within 24 hours? I think, again, this brings us back to definition of story. Um, yes, of course, you can... Um, start a story with an image, with one picture. But mm, I think a, a picture in itself is a frozen moment. And I think for a narrative, you need a sort of continuum, a, a little bit of beginning. Mm. Uh, definitely you need a beginning. Not so much an end. We can talk about in a minute about games and, and, well, let's say World of Warcraft, these folks, they are part of a story, but they don't want to end it. So that's a new concept of stories. But a photo, an image, a Snapchat snap is just a frozen moment, and it can, it can trigger a story. It can help you imagine um, yourself what might be a story around this. Mm. Um, but I would not call it a story. I, I know even I think Instagram already announced we have a new we have a new story tool. I think also Twitter really announced a new one. They all call this story. Yeah. But to me, it's it's still a series of 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 moments which help you to imagine maybe a story. It's interesting actually you're saying about not wanting to end it. And I, uh, so kind of going off topic a little bit because I'm not talking about brands. I'm just interested to know what you think about some of these um series that you get on the likes of Netflix or whatever these box sets that they go on from you know series 1 series 2 and right. they just don't know how to end so it's great but it gets to a point where it's like we don't know how to end this story correct yeah i think lost was done it that way that's I a think classic example 6 years of my life yeah. wasted there but, but i mean what what do you, what's the what's the answer to that because surely that will work for brands as well in terms of telling a good story. It has absolutely. to have a, a beginning, a middle and an end. And a sometimes it's the end bit that, yeah. that they struggle with. Absolutely. Mm, well, I, it's, it's a kind of interesting format, these Netflix series. Um, I, I think, um, yeah, well, that's my personal opinion, we're already, we already at the top of this trend. Um, and even Netflix sees that they had... They, they had um, to come up with new series and new series and again can I feed this beast they created yeah. um, but when you see a series and it's own like Games of Thrones for example a 
it's a matter of the cliffhanger. A cliffhanger is a psychologic trick. Yeah. So this is why you watch the next one and you hang on the next one, the next one. But I definitely also here, I think the need there's a need for a certain for an ending, and also with Games of Thrones, we now will see the end of. Yep. This. No spoilers. I've, no, I've only I've only watched one series. <laughs> <laughs> um, you're quite aggressive in. Uh, I've read some of the stuff you were looking at in, in terms of your challenge against the advertising industry. What, why do you say they are not built for long-term strategic counsel? Uh, I I think while the uh, as I said the advertising is, um, um, industry is way, for example, ahead of the game when it comes to um, using emotions and 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 create emotions or strong empathy. But what I see, they um, work a lot with very short-term tactics let's say okay we have um let's say have a super bowl spot a tiny little dog a big horse and you have a fantastic budweiser spot um this lasts <coughs> very short it's a it's a wow everyone looks at it everyone is kind of interested high attention span but then it's it's all over and it's gone what PR can do and where we where we are strong in is kind of we we create stories which spark a true conversation um, one example is what we saw with Scarecrow two years ago um, at Chipotle. It was an animated movie won uh, in PR in 2014, the Grand Prix. It's it's a it's an animated um, a film, perfectly done. It's about a stick Scarecrow. A ha um, you see fast food done in a very processed manner. And actually, uh, this is what Chipotle says: We have um, or <coughs> origin. We have we have we have not so much process. We are about um, organic food and natural food, etc. And and yes, this was also you can say it's a kind of tiny little film, tiny little clip. Actually, it was the teaser for um, a, um, a mobile uh, um, game. But these two tactics, I would say, sparked a conversation among teachers, parents, even kids on on um, healthy food and fast food. And that's kind of different than an advertising agency who raises awareness and then fades away. Mm. So there's a big difference. Another um, example I give you um, is the um, it's a 40 minute documentation about four sports um, um, sportsmen and women done by um, Samsung Mobile for the Rio Olympic Games. And they covered the story of these um, athletes coming from countries which never won a, a medal. So I, I think I'm along the 120 countries who are attending at uh, um, the Olympic Games, if I get the numbers right, 70 never ever won a gold medal, okay. specifically these tiny little small countries. So there's a great opportunities for great stories. So they cover in a 40 minute documentary, it's quite long movie, fantastic story about a um, female boxer from the Dominican Republic, right. a runner from Lesotho and two um, volleyball player from Vanuatu. And and the connection to Samsung is now they have a mobile phone and now they have access. Even they are so far away, now they have uh, access to training plans, to nutrition, etc. Yeah. So imagine PR is using now 40-minute-long documentaries and turning or using this kind of stories to spark a conversation about countries who have not the all all the great um, opportunities and 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 um, the technology and the knowledge li like America, um, Russia, <laughs> who name it. <laughs> um, so this gives us um, so much more um, opportunities to 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 um, um, use stories in a much more strategic way than I think in advertising. Okay, um, got a final question for you then. Um, have to ask the question Wh what are you doing at Ketchum in Germany and across your group as well actually to ensure that you're turning your clients into storytellers well I think the the, the, the biggest or yeah, the, the, the best way to work with clients when it comes to storytelling is co-creation so um, we have um, um, the best results if we work very close together with clients at the from the right from the beginning in before selling, pitching them, pitching an idea, selling an idea, 
before that doing workshops training get them familiar with the concept of storytelling because in these 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 fundamental rules of a good story i talked about at the conference for example having starting a, every good story start with a conflict that's so unusual for a client it really it gives them a hard time to adopt this mm. and to accept it so because we all in marketing in pr we started um, talking about solutions now i should start to talk about a conflict wait a minute so before um we we sell an idea into it we, we try um to get the client familiar with the concept of a story and then co-create together with him and also the best stories when we search for the best stories are very often in between the company so we search together with the client i think that that's the best way to to also kind of to start working with your clients brilliant uh petra Sema, thank you so much for staying back to do this interview uh, it's been really good to talk to you um that actually finishes the uh the first of these shows from oxford just a reminder that if you want to get in touch with uh, me about any of the, uh, the 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 shows in the c-suite podcast then you can contact me on uh, using the form at c-suitepodcast.com whether that's to take part or sponsor the show whatever whatever it is you want to chat to me about um also i'd personally like to thank uh, global media intelligence provider karma for supporting this series from Mikko. Uh, please do visit their website karma.com to find out more about how they can help you deliver actionable insights through media monitoring and pr measurement i'll be recording more interviews tomorrow but of course you can listen to uh, some of the previous shows before then subscribing to the podcast on soundcloud or itunes uh, you just need to search for the c-suite podcast and always um, if you can please give us the uh, the show a positive rating and review um, on itunes and that will help us up the itunes charts thanks for listening and goodbye.